Mark chapter 9, picking it up in verse 2, reading through verse 13. Mark 9, 2 through 13. There we read these words. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer for they became terrified. And a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement, discussing it with one another, what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first and restore all things. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? I say to you, Elijah has indeed come. And they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. This is the word of God. Please be seated. As we begin our time before discussing Jesus Christ's role as the greater Moses, let's begin our time in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the glorious words that we are already able to sing to you in worship. We thank you for the reminder of your glory. We thank you for the reminder of your mercy. We thank you for the reminder, Jesus, that we can and must trust you as you lead us, God, as you are our good shepherd who has already laid down his life for us. God, as we come into Mark 9 this morning, God, we pray that you might remove all distractions from us. Might we be properly struck with awe in response to this text as we are given a glimpse of your glory, Jesus. And as we are struck with that awe, might we also equally be struck with a proper sense of encouragement, remembering that regardless of whether or not we might understand always your will or the direction you lead us, God, that you lead us as our king already sitting enthroned, that you lead us as the son of man long foretold who brings the day of the Lord. Ultimately then, Father, might you cause us to always be able to rejoice, knowing that we serve a Jesus who is your son, knowing that we serve a Jesus who is our high king, knowing we serve a Jesus who will return again someday soon and deliver us into your kingdom. Bless this time we have this morning, God. We love you and praise you all according to your precious son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. As the narrative picks up, in Mark chapter 9, verses really 2 through 4, but as well as the rest of the text, it picks up with perhaps the most familiar imagery within the Gospel of Mark, at least up until this point in time. For just as Mark has done in prior texts, he paints this image and, and relates the story in a way that speaks not just of Jesus, but speaks of that Old Testament hero we've referenced numerous times, that of Moses. Again, look at the text and, and see these details coming to light. In Mark 9, verses 2 through 4, six days later, that is six days after Jesus has again spoken of the kingdom and spoken of suffering, we read, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. 
And he was transfigured before them, and his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, as I mentioned, this is not the first time that, that we've argued that the imagery of Moses is being used here by Mark. Most recently, if you recall, back in Mark chapter 8 as well as in Mark chapter 6, the gospel author has spoken of the miraculous feedings that Jesus provided for the people in the wilderness. And as we discussed back in those passages, those stories were reminiscent and were intended to, to reawaken the people's memories of, of another feeding that took place long before them. That feeding in which Moses was used by God in the wilderness to miraculously provide for the Israelites in the, in the midst of their exodus out of Egypt on their way to the promised land. This is the imagery that, that Mark uses back in Mark 8 and 6, and many people also argue that similar Moses analogies are being painted as far back as Mark chapter 1, where he again speaks of the wilderness, and he speaks of the baptism, and he speaks of Jesus leading the people of God in this greater exodus. Now, regardless of whether or not you clearly see Moses in some of these texts, and, and some may disagree, as we come to Mark chapter 9, it's hard to miss the, the clear similarities and the clear picture that's being painted of Jesus being compared to Moses yet again. Not of Moses necessarily feeding people in the wilderness, but Moses in an equally famous event, that is, in his journey up Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. We don't have time to read all of it, but if you turn back to Exodus 24, you can find one of the passages it seems Mark is reminding his his readers of. For back in Exodus chapter 24, you of course have this momentous occasion in the history of Israel. At this point in time in the story of the Exodus, the people of God have cried out to Yahweh. Yahweh has responded to their cries, to their prayers, and he has miraculously led them by the hand of Moses out of the nation of Egypt. He's led them out of the Red Sea, and he's bringing them slowly to the promised land. But prior to reaching the promised land, there is this all-important geographical location of Mount Sinai. That holy mountain that stands as a significant point of transition for the people of God, where for the first time, they're in essence brought face-to-face -face with, with this God who delivers them. They, for the first time, are, are brought to a proper understanding of who it is that has rescued them and how it is they are now to live. In the middle of the story, you find in Exodus 24... This account of Moses ascending with other Israelites up Mount Sinai, beginning in verse 9 of Exodus 24. There we read, Moses went up, that is, up Mount Sinai with Aaron, Nadab, Nadehu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet there appeared to be pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. They saw God. They ate and drank. Now the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandments which I have written in their instruction. So Moses arose with Joshua, his servant. Moses went up the mountain of God, but to the elders he said, wait here until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a legal matter, let them approach it. And Moses went up the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days, and on the seventh day... He called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And in the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountain. Moses entered the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. 
here in this passage and other nearby passages in Exodus, you have this language of, of Moses and other leaders ascending a mountain. Mount Sinai, you have language of a, of a cloud of glory enveloping the mountain. You have images of, of God speaking to Moses, this divine revelation. And you have this reminder to the people, again, of, of who it is exactly they are called to serve. When you come back to Mark chapter 9 and verses 2 and really all the way through verse 8, you, you see these images, these, these pictures again being painted. Where again Jesus here is, is coming up the mountain with just a, a few select leaders in the same way that Moses chose a few select leaders. We again have images of a, of a glory cloud coming on upon the, the holy mountain. We again have the imagery of, of God speaking to his people. And all these things, we have this glorious image that in some ways is familiar and yet similar to prior stories in Mark. We have these details that regardless of how familiar they might have been, they were still utterly overwhelming to the disciples. For what they saw seemed to outshine and outperform anything they had ever read from Moses and Exodus or elsewhere. For here, as they look at Jesus, they're not just looking at some figure like Moses. They, they see a figure who himself radiates light. He shines with this glorious light beaming from him. As such, he does something that, that Moses never did in Exodus. While Moses glowed faintly with the glory of God, we understand there's something different here. We understand this is the light not of Moses, but another famous text of the Old Testament, texts like Daniel 7 that describe the Ancient of Days glowing, texts that speak of the Son of Man approaching the Ancient of Days. These are other prophecies that, that seem to be more fulfilled than Jesus. Not only that, as they view Jesus, they, they don't simply view him alone. They, of course, see these other figures who stand next to him, figures like Elijah and Moses himself. Two people who played massive roles in the history of Israel. Moses, of course, for his role in, in leading the Exodus and, and offering the law to the people. And Elijah, who himself was a great prophet, who did great things, but even more than that, Elijah, who was to play a great role in, in the eschatology and the eternal hope of the Israelites, as we'll get into here in a few more moments. As these disciples view all of these things, we understand any one of them by themselves should be enough to overwhelm the disciples with fear. And even if just Moses appeared, that's pretty amazing. Or if Elijah appeared by himself, that's amazing. If it was just Jesus glowing with this glory of God, that's amazing. But when you put all of these images together, you can only imagine just how utterly overwhelming and magnificent this sight must have been. To see the transfigured Christ, to see this glimpse of his glory... Certainly, certainly this image spoke yet again to the authority of Jesus. Certainly it speaks, at least in part, to this, this Moses-like role that Jesus was to play. It speaks to this greater theme of Mark that describes the spiritual exodus of the people of God. And that alone should have been enough to inspire the disciples. That alone should have been enough to give them great confidence following after Jesus. And yet as glorious as all this imagery is, as incredible yet again as it is to consider this authority of Jesus and, and think through the many ways that he seemed to reflect the story of Moses long before him, we see that as the text continues, this really is just the, the introductory vision. This is the least significant thing that's said about Jesus in this passage, if that is 
even possible. For as the narrative continues to unfold, you see there are other things that are being revealed and being declared about Jesus through the transfiguration, not just in his appearance, but more importantly, by what is being spoken of about Jesus and what Jesus himself will eventually say. That then leads us to this second image as the narrative unfolds where we are told that Jesus is not simply a greater Moses, although that certainly is true. We are further told that Jesus is also incredibly God's anointed king. Pick up the text again with me. As the disciples witness all these things, as they are rightly being just awestruck and silence, we have the narrative shift a bit with the words of Peter, picking it up in verse 5 through 8. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. As the disciples stand silenced in awe of Jesus, as they rightly feel overwhelmed by the glory that is before them, one of them decides to go ahead and speak up. And unsurprisingly, that one is Peter. Peter totally unaware of what's happening, feels it necessary to to go ahead and speak up and say something. And, And that something is this idea that, well, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's go ahead, in essence, set up shop. Let me build a few tabernacles, and that way we can help you continue on this conversation with these great heroes of the faith. Peter here, of course, has no idea what he's saying. And it's easy to laugh at Peter to a certain extent because you can only imagine what the other disciples are thinking. Why is Peter speaking up here? There's nothing we need to say here, Peter, and yet Peter again feels necessary. And and while it is perhaps easy to laugh at Peter, we must appreciate again the significance of what it is that he's saying. We must appreciate that That Peter, again, is one of these disciples who has already been shown earlier in Mark to perhaps be the most confused over these images of of God's kingdom being inaugurated, and yet at the same time, this promise of of Jesus' coming death. Peter has already demonstrated that he has no idea how these things can come together. And so while Peter is utterly confused as to the meaning of Christ's death, while he seems utterly incapable of understanding the glory that is being transfigured before him here on this mountain, one thing it seems that he does know is, well, whatever's happening, this this seems good, Jesus. I don't know anything about your death. I don't understand where we're headed from here. But this, this seems to speak to the kingdom. And so let's, let's set up camp here, Jesus. Let's let this thing prolong. Let's keep this thing going as long as we possibly can. Some commentators debate over the specific meaning of these tabernacles. And some people believe Peter is thinking of the end times and the role the, the Feast of Booths play. I think it's far more simple than that, though. As Mark tells us, he had no idea what to say for he's terrified. I think that's the extent of Peter's mindset here. 
Peter doesn't understand what's happening. All he knows is that this seems good. And so he assumes that Jesus has brought them up here on this mountain for the benefit of basic manual labor. And so Peter's simply looking to play his part. As much as we can empathize with Peter's confusion, as understandable as that confusion is, and it is understandable, we of course understand that Peter is utterly confused and completely wrong in his interpretation of events. For Peter doesn't understand again that that this is just a temporary moment meant to pass quickly and Jesus will in fact continue to move down his path towards his death. Peter is, again, confused and mistaken. And in case we were to debate whether or not he's confused, of course, we see the text quickly reveals that, in fact, he doesn't know what to say. He doesn't understand what's happening. And he is quickly corrected by God. For it seems as he's speaking these words, as he offers this interpretation, we find this dramatic correction given from God in verses 7 through 8 again. There we read, then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. This is not the first time Peter's been corrected, is it? It was not all that long ago in Mark chapter 8 in which Peter rebukes Christ for speaking of his crucifixion, and in response to that rebuke, Jesus, very matter-of-factly in Mark chapter 8, says, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. As we discussed a few weeks ago, this is a very blunt, a very important correction given to Peter. Here in Mark 9, verses 7 through 8, we see another correction, but it's slightly different. And what makes it particularly different, again, is is the grand setting in which it places itself. It's a reminder to Peter, again, that he's missing the greater picture that is unfolding before him. You see, as as God corrects Peter with just these few words, this is my beloved son, listen to him, God, again, is using language that is packed with theological meaning. And Mark, we've, we've already seen this language used for Jesus back in Mark chapter 1. In fact, turn back, if you will, to Mark 1. For it's good to see that this is not the first time this language has been used to describe Jesus. There in Mark 1, we have the significant event of Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist. Describing that event in Mark chapter 1, verse 9. We read of this description, and those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening, the spirit like a dove descending upon him, and a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. In Mark 1, as well as in Mark 8, you have this language from from God the Father, this language coming from on high. In both passages, you have this language, speaking of of my beloved son, you have this language, in essence, that's intended to to inspire confidence, to inspire allegiance and submission to those around him. But what's important to understand that is in Mark 1, Peter wasn't there. The disciples would not have heard this original declaration necessarily. And so it's important for them to hear the same declaration here in Mark chapter 9. And what we must understand is that when, when God speaks this way of Jesus, 
He's not speaking just a a vague word of confidence in what his son can accomplish. Again, it should not surprise us that the language here speaks to a much greater prophecy that was given long before the Gospel of Mark. Now, there's some debate as to which texts specifically Yahweh refers to here, which texts specifically are being fulfilled. But two very common texts that people believe are Isaiah 42 and Psalm 2, both of which were popular passages that spoke of the coming Messiah. And I'll read Isaiah 42 at the beginning, and and I ask all of you then to turn over to Psalm 2, for both of these passages are very important to have in mind if we're to understand what's being declared of Jesus here. In Isaiah 42, I'll just read briefly in verse 1, speaking of that coming servant, we read, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. You can understand why that language is seen in Mark 1 as the spirit of the Lord descends upon Jesus and as God again speaks of his beloved son. In a similar way, back in Psalm chapter 2, an equally important text that spoke of the coming servant, that spoke of the coming king. We read these powerful words, Psalm 2, picking up in verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar, the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. And he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Today you are my, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Later on, speaking to the implications of verse 12, it says, Do homage to the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. Again, it's this language of my beloved son. It's this language of my king sits enthroned. It's the language that was understood to apply eventually to the Messiah, this one who would bring about the day of the Lord. In these few words, then, that God offers to Peter, he's reminding Peter that the things are out of Peter's hands. Peter's not the one who, who controls the situation. It is not up to Peter what Jesus Christ does. And the reason why is because Jesus Christ is not simply some figure. He's not just a new Moses. Jesus Christ is God's anointed king. Jesus Christ, the one who already sits enthroned, and and even within this text, the imagery is rich as as they literally are up on this mountain. And the glory of God surrounds them. Language in there suggests again to Peter and to everyone, this Jesus, whom you may not understand, is the unstoppable king. He is anointed. He sits enthroned. He rules over everything. And in light of that, you are to listen to him. You are to submit to him. You are to obey him. Even if you don't understand what it is he's saying, even if you don't want to follow in his footsteps, Peter, you are to follow him because he is king. This is such an important message, not just for Peter, but for everyone today. So, for so very frequently... You might hear people, and we're tempted to do this as well, who speak of Jesus in in relatively positive ways. People say of the the love of Jesus is admirable, and people look to the sacrificial spirit of Jesus, and they say, well, that's good. I'll I'll follow after that. But when it gets to 
to items that are a bit more offensive, issues of purity, issues of allegiance, issues of submission. It's easy for people to take a step back and say, okay, well, well I'll accept these other things, but on these things, well, who can really know what they mean anyway? And if, unless I, I fully understand it, I'm, I'm not going to follow after that. Unbelievers do this, of course, but we as believers do it as well at times when the commands of Christ seem particularly painful. But a passage like Mark 9, and this command in verse 7 to listen to him is a reminder that, that regardless of whether or not we understand, regardless of whether or not we want to do something, we must submit. We have no choice. For to do so is to battle against the God who sits enthroned in heaven. It's to do that which, as Psalm 2 says, welcomes laughter and scoffing. Not that God scoffs at his own people, but it speaks to the utter folly of pushing back against the kingship of Christ. Like Peter, we oftentimes need to hear these words that even when we might not fully understand, when we look at Jesus, we in fact are looking upon God's anointed king. We are looking upon he who is this present and almighty ruler. We're looking at someone then before whom we must kneel and submit. This is glorious language. And it's, it's incredible, again, to think of this imagery of Jesus on a mountaintop, glowing with the glory of God. It's amazing to think of this powerful voice booming from heavens. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And yet as glorious as that is, as, as awe-inspiring as this is, we must understand again the difficult position that the disciples are still facing. For they understand, as we also understand, that Jesus is going to leave this mountain. And what then? It's one thing to say that, that Jesus is enthroned as our ruler. It's, a, it's an entirely different thing to understand then. Okay, well, what does that mean in light of, of his death? What does that mean in light of these other things that seem to suggest his defeat, or at least suggest that his rule is limited? What are we to do with these other things? If Jesus is the greater Moses, if Jesus is the enthroned king, what does that mean for us on a daily basis? Namely, how should that still encourage us to obey? What we find is, as we finish out our text, is this final picture. It is the picture that I think is intended to, to grant us the, the greatest sense of encouragement. For it's the message that speaks to the fact that the narrative was still unfolding and speaks to the fact that even if they could not fully understand it, even if they did not see the kingdom, that Jesus was in fact also the Son of Man who would inevitably bring about the day of the Lord. We see this message picking up in verse 9 through 13. They're reading in verse 9, As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon this statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first and restore all things. Yet how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things to be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. And understanding the confusion of the disciples, it's important to, to grasp the fact that the people of God were not simply looking for some vague political ruler who would come and, and do battle with his enemies. They were looking for this grand event that is spoken of in the Old Testament as the day of the Lord. This was the event they were looking forward to. For the day of the Lord meant the utter destruction of God's enemies, those who rejected him, 
and the restoration, the redemption of God's people. And so as the disciples are coming down from the mountain, and as they're trying to process these overwhelming things they have just seen and heard, you can understand why it is that they're still confused. As they come down, Jesus, as he's done before, instructs them to, to not relate to anyone what it is they've seen and until the Son of Man has been resurrected. Yet again, the disciples are confused for, for they don't understand the resurrection, but one thing they do understand is this language of the Son of Man. For they understand in the Old Testament, the Son of Man, again, was equivalent to the Messiah. He was the one to bring about the day of the Lord. And so in light of all they've seen, in light of Jesus' claim to be the Son of Man, and in light of this proclamation of the kingdom, they're left with this question of, oh, oh, okay, so where is the day of the Lord? And speaking specifically to that question, the disciples bring up this prophecy from the Old Testament that, that told the people of God that before the day of the Lord comes, Elijah must first appear. Now, this prophecy may not be familiar to all of us here, but it is very clear if you just turn back to the book of Malachi, the final book of the Old Testament, which is significant in itself. From this final prophecy, we see this, this final word of hope and promise given to the people of God. This promise regarding this future day of restoration, this future day of judgment. In two particularly relevant texts, we have these words speaking of that day. First in Malachi chapter 3, we read, Behold, I am going to send my messenger. He will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of his covenant whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, refine them like gold and silver, so they may be present to the Lord an offering and righteousness. Similar language that speaks specifically of Elijah in Malachi 4. Verse 5 says this. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And thus you have the end of the Old Testament. Well, if that's the last promise... If the messenger has to come to prepare the day, if, if Elijah must come to, to prepare the way for the Messiah, the disciples ask, well, then where, where's Elijah? Was that it on the mountain? Was, was that his reappearance? And in response to the disciples' confusion, in response to their question, Jesus offers them a, a fairly shocking, I think, simple response. From verse 12, Jesus says, Elijah does come first. And restores all things. Yet how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come. They did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. In response to the disciples' confusion and question regarding Elijah, Jesus simply says, well, he has come. Yeah, the scribes are right. Elijah must come first. Okay. What's surprising is then Jesus says, he has come. Elijah has in fact already come. The forerunner to the Son of Man, the forerunner to the, the day of the Lord, has already appeared. What do the gospel writers reveal to us here? 
And what the disciples, it seems, did not quite understand at this moment is that Jesus is describing whom? Who is Jesus speaking of? Well, it's John the Baptist. Jesus here is telling them, quite simply, Elijah's already come because John the Baptist came. John the Baptist was the fulfillment of this great prophecy regarding Elijah. And this makes a little more sense if you look back and, and read about John the Baptist in Mark 1, doesn't it? Because John the Baptist was kind of a weird guy. Living out in the wilderness, dressing strangely, eating honey and locusts. Talking about repent for the kingdom of God is near. Speaking of Jesus as being the great lamb, baptizing all these people. Why, why was John the Baptist doing all this stuff? Why was he dressing that way? Why was he speaking that way? Why was his ministry one of baptism and repentance? Well, the reason was because John the Baptist understood his role. He understood he was the forerunner. He understood he was this, this appearance of Elijah. And Jesus again here is confirming just that, that, that Elijah has come because John the Baptist has come. And the reason why you don't understand this is, well, because now John the Baptist is dead and gone. Again, Jesus understands why this is confusing. For the prophecies clearly just speak of, of Elijah's reappearance, but they speak nothing of his suffering. But Jesus reminds them, no, this, this all still fits, falls in line with Scripture. For while you do not understand why the Son of Man will suffer, again, verse 13, it says, Elijah has indeed come. They did to him whatever they wished, just as it written of him. He speaks just as plainly of, of John the Baptist's suffering as his own suffering. And in essence, Jesus says, it's not the only prophecy. The fact that Elijah or John the Baptist suffered doesn't negate the fact that he came. And in fact, here as he speaks of this scripture that speaks of Elijah, many people say that, that Jesus is just speaking as in, the, in, in this fashion in which he describes Elijah as a person who himself was rejected by many, of, many rulers. If you remember the story of Elijah, the rulers of God's people wanted to kill him. They wanted to reject him. They just didn't successfully do it. In the case of John the Baptist, they hated him and rejected him, and they were successful in having him executed. She says the same was really true of Elijah. They, they rejected him. It's just with John the Baptist, he also was to suffer. He also was to die in the same way that I, the Son of Man, must give up my life. As Jesus speaks of this fulfillment, there are so many things that, that we could say, and it's tempting to get knocked off track at this point in time and start saying, okay, so what does this mean about prophecy, and, and, and how in the world is John the Baptist's fulfillment? And while those things are important to consider, we must not miss the significance of what Jesus is really saying to these disciples. For again, consider the words of Malachi. Once Elijah comes, what happens the day of the Lord. Once the forerunner has appeared, you have this language of the refiner's fire coming into this temple. You have this cleansing that happens. You have judgment of God's enemies. You have salvation for God's people. And so while the enemies of God are still waiting around and wondering, okay, well, I guess we're safe because Elijah hasn't come back yet, Jesus is saying, no, the table is set. Everything's been done that needs to be accomplished. Elijah's returned, and that means the day of the Lord is just around the corner, and I am the Son of Man who brings it with me. This word of Jesus, then, is a word that brought with it tremendous meaning of Israel's eschatological hopes, and again, tremendous meaning when it comes to its implications in our own lives, certainly in the lives of the disciples. For as Jesus begins heading into Jerusalem, as he is in the process of doing, 
as he enters into the temple and cleanses the temple. The enemies of God make the mistaken assumption that he can still be stopped. That if they work well with the Roman authorities and if they, they make all the right moves, that they can rid themselves of this, of this threat to their power. But of course they're mistaken in that because as Jesus enters in Jerusalem, he doesn't enter as, as some potential threat to the throne. He enters as the victorious king. As Jesus comes into Jerusalem, as he soon will do, he doesn't come as someone who hopes to fulfill the prophecies of the Son of Man. He, he does so as the successful, victorious Son of Man who brings with him the day of the Lord. As he does all these things then, he does so as the promised Messiah who fulfills all prophecy to perfection. And in response to this reality, in response to the transfiguration, the application is clear. It's application of, of submission, of repentance. The transfiguration is this bold presentation of exactly what Jesus has been saying from the beginning. The kingdom of God is here. I am the king. I am the greater Moses. I am the son of man. The day of the Lord is at hand. Repent. Or, to use the words of Psalm 2, be crushed in his wrath. It is the application that we have seen so many times in the gospel of Mark so far. And if you are here as an unbeliever this morning, I pray again you do not miss the clear message of the transfiguration. Do not make the same mistake as Christ's enemies and as so many people today who, who are holding out hope and are, are thinking, okay, well, let me examine Jesus a little bit more and consider this text or that religion. Understand that Jesus Christ is clearly proclaiming himself to be the Messiah, clearly proclaiming himself to be the Son of Man, and unless you bow before him, you too will be crushed in his wake. And so we must repent and believe. As believers, there is a proper sense of, of humility before Jesus in response to these things. Again, like we so often speak of when we read of the miracles of Christ, it is right always to initially respond with a proper sense of awe for we stand before the king of creation. That's a glorious consideration. But we must also understand again that this passage speaks further to our encouragement as well. For it reminds us that, that as confusing as the plans of God might seem at times, as difficult as this life is, as dark as the story of the crucifixion is, it is always followed by the resurrection. And as difficult as it might be to trust Jesus at times when he's calling us to live out lives as disciples, we can find encouragement in the fact that that Jesus comes as the greater Moses. He is the enthroned king. He is the son of man. And in him, the day of the Lord occurs. Therein we find our own redemption, our own restoration. And so even when we might not understand it fully, we, like Peter and the other disciples, must hear this word to follow him, trust him, obey him, fall in line behind him. And much like the disciples here in Mark, and like all of our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout church history, we understand that we too will never be disappointed by this decision. For our king sits enthroned, and he will again return victoriously, bringing with him the completion of this day. Let us ensure that we are ready for that day.